Welcome back, everyone. Um, we've heard a lot over the last two days about how Dodd-Frank has failed. And so originally, when Dodd-Frank passed without any mention of Fannie Freddie, without, any, without addressing mortgage finance, um, I thought that that was a real flaw. But looking at how Dodd-Frank turned out, it seems like maybe that wasn't a flaw after all, because maybe this is one area of reform that would actually not be tainted by the flawed approach taken in Dodd-Frank. Still have a chance to get something right. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We have uh, great panelists, and I'm going to just hand it over to them because they are the experts. Uh, we'll start with Mark Calabria, who you all know from here at Cato. But Mark, I first met when I was working on the banking committee. We worked together. and. He uh, is, is definitely a powerhouse in this issue area, along with many others. Um, but he was also before that at HUD, so he really has a lot of experience. Um, actually, although Lori Goodman was not at uh, the banking committee, she was sort of an institution there, because her data and analysis at the time of Dodd-Frank, when their deliberations were going on, everyone always turned to her for, for her data and analysis. And now she's, so she was, had three decades experience as an analyst, and now she's at the Urban Institute where she's the director of the, of, how, of the Housing Policy Finance Center. And we also have another star with us, and that's Josh Rosner, who um, is managing director at Graham Fisher. And he's also the author of a book that I, I think probably a lot of you have already read, but if you haven't, I definitely recommend it. It's Reckless Endangerment. And he's one of the people who actually saw the problems many years before most other people saw them. And so I think he'll be able to provide some very good insights. So I think we'll start with Mark and then hand it off to Lori and then Josh. Thanks. Nice. Uh, let, me, let me first say what a, a pleasure and, and, a, and a privilege is for me. I remember. I think Josh first came to me when I was in the banking committee in maybe 2003, warning about FHA and Fannie and Freddie, and he was uh, years ahead of everybody else. And, and I will echo that. I've long been a consumer of uh, Lori's data. I feel like I owe her to some extent, <laughs> so that has been incredibly helpful. I will uh, correct Hester just a little bit, because uh, if I can uh, quote what Senator Dodd said on the floor during Dodd-Frank passage when pushed about Fannie and Freddie, he said, this bill has a tough study on Fannie and Freddie. <laughs> And so I, I'm still trying to figure out what a tough study is. Uh, having seen what Treasury produced, it didn't look all that tough to me. Didn't even look like it was complying with the law. But all that said, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, first I want to go back and give you a little history really quickly, because uh, I feel like that a lot of the debates in Washington about mortgage finance um, you know, really kind of lack that, you know, how did we get here? Uh, and to me, where we're going to go is important on that, too. So I'm going to sort of go full, full circle, some history, a little bit of current, and then why I think there are some elements of the past we actually might want to reproduce, and some of it we might not want to. Uh, first, let me say, you can't really have a conversation in mortgage finance uh, in Washington without some sort of argument about homeownership coming up. So I'm not going to try to settle uh, the debate uh, whether homeownership merits subsidy, but it's certainly a really big part of the debate. And I just want to make a couple of points. Um, you know, there's a ton of academic work that says that homeownership correlates with lots of positive outcomes. Uh, I have found that one thing that's really useful to repeat to yourself at least once a day is correlation is not causality. These studies, in my opinion, have not established whether homeownership causes all of these positive things. It just says that they're associated with positive things. So one way I also put it is um, 
We really don't know whether homeownership makes more people makes people more responsible or whether more responsible people become homeowners. It's probably a little bit out the two. We also know homeownership is not without its cost. Uh, and this is particularly, uh, there's a whole uh, literature uh, around something called the Oswald hypothesis, which argues that the higher the, the trend homeownership rate is, the higher your structural unemployment rate is. And of course, makes a lot of sense. The higher your homeownership rate is, you these barriers to mobility, you know, we're not necessarily moving. One of the interesting things about the cycle we're in today uh, that to me deserves tremendous amount of investigation is in previous recessions, the mobility rate of homeowners has increased. In this most previous recession, the mobility rate of homeowners decreased. Uh, and I think we really need to give a lot of, a lot of thought. We're, we're no longer seeing people as much move from Orlando to Atlanta to find a job in the same way we have in the past. Uh, another comment about some of the literature is the literature often looks at, well, what's the uh, characteristics of the average homeowner? It's important to keep in mind that the average homeowner and the marginal homeowner are likely not the same. Uh, and so just because something is good on average doesn't mean it's good for everybody. So policy uh, implications really need to look at the marginal homeowner. That is the person we would not get into homeownership but for the intervention in question. Uh, we certainly know many people would be homeowners without these interventions or not. Also important to keep in mind, most of the externalities, that is the, 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 the effect on the rest of us from homeownership are fairly local in nature. So all the things about you know homeowners make for good neighbors and mow their lawns, um, it's not clear to me why in me in Washington, D.C. should have to subsidize somebody who's mowing their lawn in Des Moines. So again, it's, it's the, the, neg the externality is generally both positive and negative, because on the other side, uh, if somebody in Des Moines has a bad neighbor who's got junk piled up in their front yard, that's probably going to hit them more than it's going to hit me. Uh, also, uh, you know, this is one of the things you get used to when you work on Capitol Hill is everybody who's pushing a position has some sort of benefit analysis of how many jobs it creates. Uh, it's shocking to me how the regular train of people who came to my office are the hell of, if we just did policy X, we could create all these jobs. Uh, to me, I think the literature on homeownership is grossly exaggerated in that way. Partly it's because we all have to live somewhere. Uh, whether somebody owns a condo versus lives in an apartment, it's not clear to me that the job impact is any different in terms of building that apartment than building that condo. So the question of tenure, I think, has been grossly exaggerated in terms of an economic driver. But the reason I raise that is, and you know, Kevin touched on this in the, in the previous panel. You know, FHA was first created to only do new loans. And so it really is a history uh, of housing policy as a job creation economic stimulus program. And, and that's still, I think, very much uh, is part of the conversation. Let me also make a couple just historical points. Uh, I've got two charts here. The larger chart is the homeownership rate. And the reason they're 10 years is from because it's from the decennial census. And the smaller bar is the GSC market share. So there's two points I think you should take away from this, which is, um, one, the GSEs were kind of late to the game. They really had very single-digit market shares before the 1980s. Uh, and also, more importantly, we hit our trend homeownership rate that we have about today around 1960. So the importance is, is that the growth of the GSEs has not been accompanied with really any long-run growth of homeownership trends. Of course, we had a big boom and bust. Uh, homeownership went up, went down in the, in the, in the 2000s. Uh, but again, the long-term trends don't seem to be influenced at all by GSE, home, by GSE share of the market. Um, it's also worth keeping in mind, this is another chart that, that, that I think is actually more powerful than the last one. Uh, again, the larger bars are homeownership. The second bars are the average debt-to-income ratio that is the debt to value for homeowners, the amount of leverage in the system. And so, you know, back in uh, 1950, 1960, it was common that people had a lot of equity in their house. 
One of the stats that actually astounds me is previously to 1960, the majority of homeowners owned their homes free and clear. They had no mortgage. Crazy. You actually own something. Um, we've lost that. So to me, uh, at least what the trend suggests to me is one of the things we have delivered in terms of mortgage finance policy is we've delivered a lot of debt. We've gotten people highly, highly leveraged. Uh, we've achieved that. It's not clear to me what we've achieved much else, uh, but we certainly have that, which makes me want to emphasize most of our uh, home ownership policies are not really home ownership policies. They're home debt policies. Mm -hmm. And whether they actually increase uh, the uh, home ownership rate to me is ambiguous at best, if not suggestive, that it can have some negative impacts. Uh, so let me talk a little bit, go back into the 30s and talk about why exactly do we have GSEs. Uh, and so the reasons that my read of the history is, the, the foremost reason we created Fannie Mae and FHA in the 30s was because we had a very fragmented banking system. You know, the typical small bank did not have access to the na national capital markets uh, was highly dependent on local economic conditions. And I give you a little numbers there. You know, 1935, we had 14,000 some banks with only 3,000 some branches. Uh, 2011, and again, the, the trends have only changed a little bit in the last couple of years. But we've essentially gone from a system of lots of small fragmented banks that were heavily dependent on the local economy for their deposit base. Uh, but now we've gone to a much more geographically uh, system. And people often invoke Canada as a comparison of what we'd look like otherwise. So to some extent, to me, one of the arguments for the GSEs initially was to solve this lack of geographic diversification. Uh, well, I think we've solved that. So again, we need to ask why essentially do we have this system in place? Also note, uh, we often hear that we need somebody to be a lender of last resort for mortgages, and that's why you need to keep Fannie and Freddie. It's worth noting we have other lenders of last resort. Uh, with the Federal Reserve bought over a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities. You know, the ECB bought about 700 billion in covered bonds. Federal home loan banks are there. So I would submit that we could get rid of Fannie and Freddie, not replace them, and we'd still lead the world in mortgage socialism. So. <laughs> Uh, there's a, the really big question you often hear, where if it's not the GSEs, then who? You know, somebody's got to fund this. First, I want to, you know, put my cards on the table, which uh, might not make my friends in the mortgage banking industry happy. But going back to that chart I showed you about the increasing debt uh, of households, um, I don't really think we should want a $10 trillion or $11 trillion mortgage market. I think that implies that current house prices way too much household leverage. Uh, and I simply don't think it's a good thing for our economy or a good thing for households. So I don't even engage in the how do I find 10 trillion because I think the answer should be closer to six or seven trillion. Of course, I think the answer should be driven by the marketplace without the subsidies. Uh, but I think without the subsidies, we'd have a much smaller mortgage market, far more equity. Also worth saying, um, you know, the origination trends, 2012 is a trillion. We're going to see maybe a little around that case uh, now. So you don't really need to replace the whole market at once. You only need to replace new originations. So there's not a sort of we need to completely reinvent the wheel. Every plan I've ever seen, and as much as I would prefer sort of a big bang to Fannie and Freddie, every plan I've seen seems to have a five, six, seven, ten-year transition period. So we have plenty of time for existing mortgages to roll off. We don't need to think about replacing the system overall. Now, one thing I want to talk about and focus on is often what's presented is that the GSEs uh, have connected Main Street and Wall Street. But, you know, the Main Street uh, uh, borrowers and then, you know, the lending is all on Wall Street, where the reality of the GSEs is that they were largely funded by the same people who were funding mortgages. You know, the banks are the ones who hold mortgage-backed securities. The insurance and pension companies, which were very large participants in the mortgage market uh, until the GSEs, mutual funds. Uh, to give you sort of a little example that's stylized but not necessarily inaccurate, it wasn't unusual pre-crisis and even today for Bank of America 
to make 1,000 mortgages, sell those 1,000 mortgages to Fannie Mae, buy back the underlying mortgage-backed securities, holding those 1,000 mortgages, and put that back on Bank of America's balance sheet. Now, why would you ask would you go about this very roundabout system? Well, yes, of course, Fannie and Freddie take the credit risk. Bank of America takes the interest rate risk back. But even better for Bank of America, they cut their required capital more than half by doing so. So to a very large extent, I would submit that the growth of securitization in the mortgage market and the growth of Fannie and Freddie has simply been a capital arbitrage. Uh, my back of the envelope is in 2005, near the height of the bubble, our mortgage market on the institution side was leveraged over 60 to 1. So we set up incentives for the risk to flow to the most highly leveraged parts of the system. So my point would be, if banks can hold a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities, then they should simply be able to hold a trillion dollars in mortgages. Again, we'd have to think about the capital rules, but my back of the envelope is maybe banks under current capital standards would have to raise $30 billion more in capital to be able to swap out their mortgage-backed securities for actually mortgages. So again, the capacity is out there because the capacity are the same people who funded Fannie and Freddie to begin with. So, it's, uh, one, so before I continue, I think one thing to keep in mind, anytime somebody enters into a debate about mortgage finances, mortgages are going to rest on somebody's balance sheet. They don't just poof, disappear just because the government has wrapped a guarantee around them. So it's a question of whose, mortgage, whose balance sheet do we want them on? Is that entity who, is, who holds them on their balance sheet well capitalized or not? Uh, is that entity that's well, that holds them on their balance sheet too big to fail? Uh, all these are things I think need to be directly addressed. So for that reason, my suggestion in terms of reforming our mortgage finance system is, uh, and I say this accepting the problems of the SNL crisis, which I think we can deal with and, and in some sense have dealt with, I think we need to go back to a deposit-based system. Uh, where lenders make loans, they hold those loans on portfolio, they're responsible for those loans. Uh, most of the world does it that way and seems to actually, you know, other people actually live in houses in the rest of the world. Uh, the U.S., I believe, is only 17th or 18th in, in homeownership rates among developed countries. So many other countries are able to have high levels of homeownership with a deposit-based system. I think it also reduces the asymmetric information problems you get in a broker-driven model. Uh, when a broker makes a loan or a lender makes a loan and simply sells into the capital markets, they are far less concerned about the quality of that loan. To my friends on the left, I think this is also an improved situation in terms of mortgage modification and mitigation strategies. When you, a local lender, holds the loan, you know whether this person's actually going to get their job back, whether the employer. So a lot of that soft local information, you don't have 100% information, but I think you have far better information in a hold and originate and hold world than you do in an originate distribute world. Again, as I mentioned, a lot of what our current system is just regulatory arbitrage driven. Um, well, I think we've also gotten around some of the geographic diversification problems. And it's also worthwhile, and again, some of this is deposit insurance, some of this is a variety of reason. Deposits are sticky. Despite the fact that we had a financial crisis, every, all during the financial crisis, the amount of insured deposits in the system increased, not decreased. Yes, people pulled their money out of IndyMac. Yes, people pulled their money out of WAMU. Did they put it under their mattress? No, they put it in another bank. And again, the data from the FDIC are very clear on that. Deposits are far more sticky than, say, repos. So I think having a system that is deposit funded would actually be far more stable financially. I also want to mention you know, a couple of other comparisons. Uh, there are other sectors that certainly have some interventions but performed no worse. So the comparison you see here, uh, the blue line is the auto market, and the um, uh, other line is the, the red line is the housing starts, and this is auto sales versus housing starts. And, it, and not surprisingly, they both followed each other the same trail as the economy weakened. 
That big spike there in the auto is cash for clunkers. No surprise there. You saw a big spike and then back to trend. But after we got past cash for clunkers, the interesting thing is somehow without massive government guarantees of auto lending, the auto market improved and healed in a way that we did not see in the mortgage market. Variety of reasons for that, but certainly uh, the lack of guarantee explicitly behind auto lenders. Um, obviously, I'll say as an aside, we bailed out some auto companies that may or may not have been a factor. But that said, on the credit side, uh, you didn't need these sort of guarantees. Um, this is also the, uh, a trend in terms of non-revolving debt versus mortgages. So it's not more not not auto debt, but other things like credit cards, uh, other 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 borrowing. Uh, consumer debt recovered very quickly, whereas mortgage market continued to go down. So the point with these last two slides I really want to make is, um, despite all these extensive guarantees in the mortgage market, the mortgage market actually seems to perform worse in a recession uh, relative to other types of consumer finance that don't have the same level of extensive guarantees. I'll certainly say, uh, you know, as a caveat, um, Insured banks, uh, insured depositories have guarantees behind them. Most of the sectors of our financial system have some sort of guarantee or not. So in some sense, it's often a choice of pick, uh, picking the worst, the least bad outcome. Um, so again, a couple other uh, observations about auto loans. You know, the, the rates are auto loans only slightly above mortgages. Uh, you can get an auto loan fixed rate for about up to seven years, five years. Uh, the average life of a mortgage has traditionally been about seven years. So again, the argument that people want or need 30-year financing or are unwilling to pay for it is largely, uh, to me, irrelevant. Most people don't have a mortgage for 30 years. Uh, we could certainly fund our mortgage market with uh, loans that are fixed rate for seven, 10 years, adjustable after that. Other countries do that. And again, we do it in the auto loan market. Uh, I would also say that the auto loan securitization side uh, recovered more quickly than the subprime mortgage side. Um, and it's also, I think, you know, a lot of the debate about what mortgage finance should look like often revolves around the conversation of loan to value. It's worth keeping in mind that pretty much every auto loan is underwater once you roll off the lot. But guess what? People still pay their auto loans even when they're underwater. Now, of course, I think what might, something that might be a driver of that is if you stop paying your car loan and you eventually go out in the morning, your car's not going to be there. It's crazy how that motivates people to pay their, pay their loans. Um, obviously, I don't think we live in a world where you can simply take somebody from, you know, wake up and your house is not around you. Um, but I do think, you know, and this is, uh, goes back to the earlier panel on consumer finance, um, I think we do need to have a broader conversation about things about recourse, about prepayment penalties. Uh, we need to have a conversation about making it, uh, you know, uh, incentivizing borrowers to actually pay. So it's not surprising to me that we live in a world with very little recourse, very little equity, with very poor credit, and we have lots of defaults. That shouldn't be a mystery at all. Also say as an aside in that, in that, in that context, um, we don't need a subsidy or a guarantee for prime loans with large down payments. I have no doubt in my mind that the market <coughs> can make a 7-800 FICO loan with 10% down. The, the debate really about mortgage guarantees is about 640 FICO with 5% down, which is a risky loan by any stretch of the imagination. I th certainly think we should recognize we are the only country in the world where subprime mortgage lending is widely available. It's kind of crazy. Most other countries, if you don't have a history of paying your bills, you don't get a mortgage. Somehow the rest of the world survives that way. Uh, I'll also note in socialist France, if you don't pay your mortgage, they garnish your wages. Crazy. Um, so again, if, you, we, if we make it easier for people to default, unsurprisingly, you get higher defaults. And of course, this is not. if you also make it easier for lenders to make bad loans and not bear the cost of that, they're also going to uh, make bad loans. 
So I also want to say, you know, one of my frustrations as an economist and listen to other economists, uh, I'm the first to say, you know, and, and, you know, we need to have realistic models. We need to have realistic descriptions of the economy. We also need to have realistic discussions and realistic models of, of our government. Uh, sort of inserting a kind of market failure than assuming some benevolent dictator that comes in as a social planner is just insane and ridiculous. Government doesn't operate that way. Um, and so some of the things I want to, and some of this, of course, is informed by me having studied a little public choice under the late Jim Buchanan, but also having spent seven years on Capitol Hill. Uh, insurance premiums will always be underpriced. I have, I, you can, that's an iron law of almost how government insurance programs will work. Uh, it is about hiding the costs. Also keep in mind that uh, the system will tend to be pro-cyclical. You know, democracy loves a bubble. Uh, when everybody is selling their house and talking about how much money they make, you know, woe is the politician or the regulator who leads against that. And so I do think we have to keep in mind that we have to have a system that is intentionally designed to be counter-cyclical. Um, why I prefer a more market-based system is I think market participants have far stronger incentives to kind of lean against the wind. Uh, as we all remember, Enron, WorldCom, Fannie Mae, the problems that these companies were spotted by short sellers long before they were spotted by the SEC or the regulators. So you have to have the right incentives in place. Also important to keep in mind that whatever standards and safeguards you start with, they will be eroded over time. And so while I understand that we are 80 years past FHA, it's worth keeping in mind that over 90% of the mortgages that FHA insures today would have not have been eligible when FHA was created. That's a lot of slippage in my opinion. Uh, it's also important to keep in mind, uh, we often see uh, systems set up where, you know, we'll, you know, we'll cost for it, we'll set up an insurance, we'll have a lockbox. Um, all federal insurance is cash flow driven. There's no lockbox. There's no lockbox for Social Security. There's no lockbox for FDIC. There's no lockbox for FHA. Government collects premiums. They put a treasury bill into the account, and then they spend the premiums. There's no money there. We have to you know, start with that premise and recognize that. Of course, some, I'll be very upfront about it. Those of us here at the Cato Institute who are trying to shrink government don't necessarily, uh, are not big fans of the fact that all of these insurance programs allow government spending that would not happen otherwise. Um, I also think it's important to keep in mind that you know, the budget outlooks going into the future, if you ever have a moment to peruse the CBO long-term forecast, which in my opinion are actually um, conservative uh, estimates, uh, it's not a pretty picture. And this pretty picture, I think, is going to force uh, politicians to look for off-budget liabilities, contingent liabilities, and as an attractive way to offer subsidies because the ability to do so on budget will become increasingly constrained. So uh, Washington, I think, is going to be very creative in the years ahead to try to find ways to spend money without you knowing that they're spending money. Uh, and the mortgage finance system will be, for, will be at the top of that list. I um, also want to you know, make a point. Uh, we often hear these sort of 100-year flood conversations. Of course, you know, we, have housing, we have housing booms and busts every 20 or so years. We seem to have financial crises every 10 to 15 years. So they don't really seem like 100-year events to me. They seem quite regular. Um, and I think one of the problems here uh, is, to me, one of the reasons the last crisis was so dangerous is because we had increasing competition across the system, whether it was Fannie Freddie, whether it was the shadow banking, uh, you know, the countrywide of the world, whether, whether it was the commercial banking system. And I would posit you can't mix competition and guarantees. You have to choose. Because as we know from Econ 101, vigorous competition leads you with zero normal profits. You will drive businesses out of it. So if you have extensive, compet extensive competition with extensive guarantees, the guarantees will be called upon. Now, I like competition. I think it's a good thing. 
So to me, I think we need to give up the guarantees and have a market system. I think the belief that we can have rigorous competition in the market with guarantees and somehow believe that regulators will control the moral hazard from those guarantees, I think has repeatedly been proved false. So I th again, we need to make a choice here. We can't have our cake and eat it too. My druthers is to have competition and stability rather than the guarantees. I think it's also worth keeping in mind, uh, and as much as this uh, pains me to think about, I know that there will be a day in my life again why you will hear people tell me that housing prices never go down. We almost watching my clock for it to come back. I uh, certainly heard it repeatedly. One of the most frustrating things about being on the Hill and trying to push back against, you know, some of the housing bubble was the repeated uh, claims by the industry and others that, well, you know, we've solved all that. People don't walk away from their houses. At worst, it'll flatten out. Um, you know, we haven't cured the housing cycle. We haven't cured the business cycle. And we need to plan for another boom and bust again uh, until we actually try to reduce some of the things that create that boom and bust. Um, so again, to me, the concern here is that these guarantees that we try to control with government regulation are simply insufficient to control the moral hazard. Uh, I think the regulatory incentives are quite weak. Uh, I would uh, challenge you to think about any regulator who actually got punished for doing a pretty poor job. Uh, I'll pick on my, my bet noir for the most part, which is I can think of no regulator that failed down on their face more than the New York Fed. Uh, I could list you know, a dozen different things of where they screwed up. Uh, and so what did we do? We gave the head of the New York Fed a promotion to the Treasury Secretary. What does that say? To me, it sends the exact wrong message you want the regulatory community to take away. Again, with the exception of, I can't remember his name, maybe one gentleman from the OTS in the Western region was finally fired after years of incompetence and looking over uh, IndyMac. And, and so maybe one guy actually got you know, canned. You can, cannot really think of uh, anybody else. And so I have no sympathy for the Jimmy Keynes of the world who lost 90 plus million, billion, you know, 90 plus, you know, 90 plus percent of their wealth. That's what they had coming. You just don't see the same sort of discipline on the, on the governmental side. And so to me, the political pressures are always going to be there to erode the moral, erode the safeguards uh, and to extend the guarantees. And, and, you know, I will certainly say my time on the Hill was spent up into the bubble. People coming through my door telling me about this great wealth making machine called homeownership and why we need to get everybody into it. You know, the number of people I could count on my hands, you know, maybe other than Josh that came in and said, we really need to be worried about where this is going, were very few. And for every one Josh, there were 100 others telling me a different story, pushing the other direction. So uh, again, we need to plan for this. Uh, you know, also one point, and this is a five-year change in, in Bob Schiller's price series that goes back uh, to, I believe, uh, 1890. And so the point here is to say, and again, to keep in mind that most people stay in their houses for about five, six years, um, housing prices swing a lot, and they swing a lot pretty regularly. Um, so the argument that somehow putting all of your investment into, into housing is a safe investment, I think, has just been repeatedly disproven. Uh, housing is not a safe investment, particularly when it's highly leveraged. Uh, you know, one of the things we've actually seen, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we talked about this on the consumer panel, you know, is we really have taken this direction of trying to protect consumers from making any bad decisions uh, and bearing the consequences or responsibility of that. Now, I think it certainly was, in my opinion, a combination of predatory lending, but also reckless borrowing. And we've only really at best addressed one side of that and not the other, which I think was far more important. You know, also, quickly, before I wrap up a couple things, what I've presented here um, are, a are, are charts of a magnitude of credit scores uh, in LTV. And so the safest, of course, is the sort of 680 to 520, which is prime. And then the LTV range is on this side. And so in, in, in how to read this chart is a loan in this bucket, think about that as to be 100%. And the loan over here is like eight times the, the ability to default. 
This is for FHA, so I've abstracted away from any crazy uh, characteristics of the loan. These are overwhelmingly, quote unquote, safe fixed rate mortgages. And the point being here is that if you make high LTV loans to very low FICO borrowers, you would get very high levels of default. It's not a mystery. And, and that's where a lot of the conversation, in my opinion, needs to be about mortgage finance reform. This area over here doesn't need subsidies. This area over here, it's either going to have to be highly leveraged or it's going to need subsidies for lenders to want to make those loans. And that's really what we should be honest about and what the conversation is. So some policy principles to kind of end with. Um, we need to eliminate capital arbitrage in the system. If you hold a federal charter and you hold a mortgage, you should hold the same capital as everybody else who holds a federal charter and a mortgage. Uh, to me, I would ultimately get rid of any sort of credit allocation. You know, I live in a house. I own a house. I like a house, but I like other stuff too. I'm not asking for the government to, you know, guarantee my allocation of beer every month. Uh, so I should be able to pick the allocation of how I might run my resources. Uh, I'd also say I think risk-bearing needs to be transparent, uh, which is sort of counter to the conventional wisdom here on Capitol, on Capitol Hill, which is to hide all the liabilities. Um, I also think in terms of a redistribution of wealth through the finance system, which we do an awful lot of, that should be on budget. It should be above board. It should be appropriated. Uh, we should, I mean, I, I think finance has repeatedly proven to be a fairly poor tool for redistributing income. Um, so let me end with saying, uh, you know, we've gotten the PATH Act out of the House Committee. Crapo Johnson's been voted on committee. There have been a couple of rival House bills. Uh, reform just doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon to me. I think it's going to take another crisis. I will put myself in the minority, however, by saying uh, I think it will be sooner rather than later that we actually see the GSE start losing money again. Maybe not to the middle of next year, but when the Fed starts raising rates and housing prices start to moderate, these are two entities that have essentially zero capital. Uh, and I think when they start losing money again, that's going to get the reform movement again. So I don't think we're actually going to see much of substance until the next Congress. Um, so again, we have a lender of last resort. You know, you need to make sure that these backstops don't create crises. Um, and I also have to keep in mind that the political system can be a source of systemic risk. So that was a lot to throw at you. Uh, I know uh, Lori's going to up me with having even more charts. So uh, keep your eyes sharp. Thank you all very much, and thanks for inviting me to be here today. Um, my talk is going to be a little bit different than Mark's talk and, the, and, the, and Josh, Josh's talk, because they're going to talk about what, they've talked more about what should be done. Um, I'm going to talk more about how, um, and Mark alluded to this at the end, how nothing's going to be done, so my talk is really the muddle talk. <laughs> um, housing finance, which way forward, we muddle along. So with that, um, this talk is actually going to be in um, four pieces. The first is sort of going to be an introduction to some numbers, how we're financing the mortgage market at this point. The second part is going to be on the PLS market, why we have not brought back private label securities. The third is going to be on why legislative GSE reform is an impossible task. And then finally, I'm going to spend some time on administrative GSE reform, which is how we move the current process forward. Unfortunately, my first slide did not turn out, which is um, which basically showed you the value the the value of the U.S. housing market. The market val the value of of ha the housing market is um, about twenty two um, is a, is about um, twenty one point two billion dollars, of which more than half is equity, about eleven point four billion dollars in equity. And mortgage debt is about $9.8 billion. 
$9.8 trillion, I apologize. So, 20, so um, basically um, $21 trillion, $9.85 trillion is in mortgage debt. Out of that mortgage debt, the, G, the agency securities are about 56%. And if you have my handouts there, these numbers are in there. Agency securities are about 56%. Unsecuritized holdings in the Fannie and Freddie portfolio are about 5%. Another 24% are in unsecuritized first liens at commercial banks. The private label securities market is about 8% and about 7% is second lien. So that's the stock. Now let's look at the flow. If you look at page, if you look at um, this page, and let's focus actually um, on the percentage table. This shows you the sort of new issuance through time. How, um, and you'll notice that in the fourth, first quarter of 2014, out of new origination, about 54.3% was for GSC securitization, 23% was um, FHA VA securitization, Less than 1% was private label, and bank portfolio, the top chart, is about 22%. Now, let's look at how this has changed through time. Um, if you go back to 2002, you see that about 53% of the mortgage market was, was government, um, about 47% GSE, and about 6% FHA VA. So if you look through time, the huge gain has actually been in the FHA VA sector of the mortgage market. The bank um, portfolio share was about 23, was about 33%, now down to 22%. And the private label market was about 13%. If you fast forward that to 2007, I'm sorry, to 2006, you see a huge growth in terms of the private label market, some shrinkage in terms of the bank portfolio market, and a huge shrinkage in terms of the GSE and FHA VA. During the crisis, the private label market shrunk to nothing, almost nothing, and has not come back. So when you talk about who has actually picked up the gap, it is the government market. The mortgage market as we know it is functioning because of the presence of that government guarantee. What about the bank portfolio loans? Well, they've gone from 33% in 2002 down to 22% at the present time. And when you actually want to talk about counter-cyclical policy, it's really been FHA, VA that has um, actually picked up the bulk of mortgage lending since the crisis. They have been the huge gainers. The um, Ginnie May the Ginnie May outstandings just passed a um, trillion and a half dollars, up from about um, a half a trillion before the immediately before the crisis. So let's talk a little bit about the private label market. Why did it go from 13% up to about 40% and down to less than 1%? Um, when you talk to people in the private label market, they'll say, oh, well, things are coming back. Well, gee, you know, 2013 looked a lot better than 2012. We're coming back. Well, no, we're not really coming back. If you look, um, uh, if you look, you, um, you can see that 2002, we had about $400 billion in non-agency MBS issuance. Um, there was about $16 billion in terms of new MBS issuance in 2013. We're not coming back. Um, if, you if you take out bank origination, that is portfolio origination, just look at securitized supply, you can see the private label market is less than 1% of the total. So the question is, why is it not coming back? 
what's going on. And there's actually a couple of different things that are going on. There are pricing issues, which in my view are heavily depend are, are heavily um, dependent on lack of standardization, and then there are governance issues. I think we have to assume that the private label market is not going to come back in any size for quite some time. Um, this um, is just sort of a stylized chart that shows you three channels of execution for um, a bank makes a loan. They can do three things with it. They can sell it to the GSEs, they can hold it in their own portfolio, or they can put it in a private label securitization. So what this shows you is that GSE securitization is the most profitable, but it is the most profitable by a tiny little margin. That is, it is not that much less profitable to hold in portfolio. And for many high quality loans, it's actually more profitable for banks to hold these loans in portfolio. And you actually do see an increasing bank portfolio share. But what stands out in this picture is private label securities execution is by far the least efficient um, way to dispose of these of this of these um, high quality mortgages. That is, it costs so much to offload these mortgages in, um, in a private label security, in, part, in large part because of the cost of the senior bond. The senior bond is going to sell about 50 basis points behind agency execution. Why is that? Well, a big part of the reason is liquidity. These bonds are a lot less liquid. They're a lot less liquid because there's a total lack of standardization. There is nothing. Um, so before the crisis, people thought, oh, well, all these deals are essentially the same. What the crisis taught us is that they weren't. Is that they weren't. And what the issuers um, have to do is essentially get together and say, OK, we're going to have three different formats of reps and warrants. We're going to have the large bank format. We're going to have the REIT format. And we're going to have the non-bank format. And like an ISDA contract, you just check off which types of rep and warrants features you have. Um, we're nowhere close to that. Um, I was talking to an investor the other day um, who said, oh, yeah, you know, I spent the train ride down to DC um, looking at the 75-page summary of, the, of, a, of a given deal. And then he can read the 450-page um, pooling and servicing agreement as well as the prospectus. So he's got to do 900 pages of reading before he can even think about buying the deal. And then he's got to worry that some smart lawyer buried something on page 273 of the pooling and servicing agreement that he missed. So for 50 basis points, you say, well, gee, is it really worth it? Having said that, I think the lack of standardization is, um, is the single largest issue. There have been some huge improvements in terms of securitization 2.0 versus pre-crisis securities. First, we're starting out with full documentation loans. What a novelty. I'm going to actually do this from the bottom up. Um, before the crisis, um, most of the loans were alternative doc, and Kate, in some cases, no doc. Full docs were relative rarities. Now it's only full doc loans. Second, huge improvements in due diligence. There's a heavy sample of seasoned originators and a 100% sample of unseasoned originators. Um, before the crisis, there was almost no due diligence. Um, the agencies, the rating agencies pulled, um, had. Um, the due diligence providers pull a sample, 5% sample. If you found that 50% of that 5% sample was defective, you took those 50% of the 5% out of the deal, and you stuck them in the next deal. There was no notion of, oh my god, 50% of these loans are defective on my sample. Maybe I ought to do a larger sample. 
Structural, there have been, and there have also been a large number of structural changes that help ensure that cash flows aren't released to the subordinate bonds early in the life of the deal, providing inadequate protection to the AAAs if losses are incurred later in the life of the deal. So huge improvements already. Some remaining issues, again, the lack of standardization is the single biggest issue. Who's looking out for investor issues and who sh who, who's looking out for investor interests and who should be? Should the trustees or servicers have a fiduciary responsibility to investors? Having servicers have a fiduciary responsibility to investors makes no sense because you're essentially having the fox guard the hen house. Should there be an independent collateral manager? Um, reps and warranties, you need mechanisms for detection and enforcement. Um, you have issues with lack of disclosure on servicing practices. How exactly are the loans being modified? Does the servicer own the second lien? How much is being charged for property preservation? Does the servicer own the lawn mowing service, and are they charging 1000 bucks to mow the lawn on the home that nobody is living in? And there's absolutely no disclosure on that. So there are some very significant governance issues. Moving forward, the Structured Finance Industry Group is run, is, um, has a number of work streams where they're trying to tackle these issues. Um, in addition, some of you may have noticed that the Treasury came out with um, a solicitation for comments on restarting the private label securities market, and those comments are due um, August 8th. That effort is being run out of Mike Stegman's office. So, but, you know, certainly the issues, while there are huge improvements in the private label securities market, have already been made. Um, and, of course, the biggest improvement is that only loans that never default are going into private label securities to begin with. There are still some issues that have to be dealt with, and as a result, I don't expect any immediate restart on that market. Now let's talk about legislative GSE reform, where I agree with Mark 100%, it ain't going to happen. So I think there's some widespread agreement on the big issues. We need to preserve the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. We need to preserve the TBA market for mortgage-backed securities. Private capital takes the first loss. There, and I think, unlike um, Mark's view, I think most people do think there should be some sort of a catastrophic government guarantee because, as we saw, the government was instrumental in keeping the mortgage market functioning throughout the crisis, and large and small lenders can access the market. Then there's a disagreement on a lot of points on implementation. I think the biggest disagreement is actually on the final point, is how do you handle the access and affordability issues? Because you have an inherent conflict. On the other hand, if private capital, on one hand, if private capital takes the first loss and you get risk-based pricing, how do you provide broad access to credit? Well, the obvious answer is you provide explicit subsidies so everyone knows how much is being subsidized. The problem is that we absolutely refuse to do that. This is um, the sort of access and afford the sort of how much cross-subsidy are we willing to permit in the system is really the don't ask, don't tell of housing finance reform. So as a result, I think you're unlikely to get GSE reform before 2017 for a number of reasons. First, there's no sense of urgency. The GSEs are profitable. The current system is functioning. Even in a Corker-Warner-type world, um, no one wants to go back. No, Congress people, congressmen are very reluctant to go back to their constituents and say, you know what, we've replaced the GSEs. It's great. Your mortgage rates are only going to go up 40 basis points. And of course, under Hensterling, they would go up a lot more in a completely private market. So 
you know, there's no, absolutely no sense of urgency. There are higher legislative priorities. There are no easy answers as to what the new housing finance system should look like with the access and affordability issues being the big issues. And bipartisan action requires compromise. And some believe they have more to lose than to gain by compromising in this area. So bottom line, no legislative action before 2017. And I would actually bet against it for a substantially longer period of time than that. So given that, what happens? Well, we muddle along. So let me talk about some of the actions that FHA and FHFA are taking. First, um, in um, there's sort of a widespread agreement that private capital should take more of the first loss. So let's talk about how we're trying to bring private capital back within the confines of the, of the current system administratively. I think there's been an important shift as we've gone from a DeMarco FHFA to a Watt FHFA. Um, DeMarco was, was trying to bring private capital back in large part by contracting the GSE footprint. And Watt is trying to do it by reducing the risk to taxpayers. So the DeMarco direction is you crowd in private capital by raising G fees and possibly lowering loan limits. If you look at this next slide, this shows you what's happened to guarantee fees through time. And you can see that they've gone on average from about 28 basis points in um, early 2012 to 63 basis points at the present time. DeMarco also introduced um, loan level pricing adjustments. And as his last action in December, he proposed another 10 basis point G fee hike and an increase in loan level pricing adjustments. Watt basically put that um, G fee hike on hold. And what he's trying to do is bring in private capital with no contraction in the GSE footprint versus in by increased reliance on back end risk sharing. That is where the GSEs lay off the risk that is already on their balance sheet. And actually, this was started by DeMarco and has actually proved to be very successful. You've all seen the series of capital market transactions that both Fannie and Freddie have done. And you can see, uh, overshot by one slide. So you can see that Freddie has laid off about 8% of, uh, has basically covered about 8% of their total um, whole of their um, total guarantee book of business. Fannie has covered about 5% of its total guarantee book of business. And this does not reflect, reflect the latest Fannie deal that is in the market um, as we speak. So um, the risk sharing has been huge, and those efforts have actually been stepped up since DeMarco took over. There have also been some reinsurance deals. The MBA has proposed um, front-end risk sharing. Rather than laying off the risk that's already on the GSE's book of business, um, why not do risk sharing at the front-end where the mortgage insurers uh, essentially buy loans down to, say, 40 or 50 LTV? Well, the first thing you have to do is be sure that the mortgage insurers are going to be there to take the risk that they've actually signed on for, and the FHFA has um, come out with... Um, a request for comments on increased capital requirements for the MIs and risk-based capital requirements for the MIs. Meanwhile, DeMarco's GFI increase, as I mentioned, has been postponed pending further study, and the comment letters on the GSE GFIs are due August 4th. My guess is that neither GFIs nor LLPAs are likely to rise. However, that is just, that's just speculation. The, it, another focus of the, of the FHA and the FHFA has been um, 
increasing the credit availability box. Uh, now, there is no question that higher, uh, that riskier loans default at a higher rate, and Mark showed that very, very nicely, and there's no question that it is a much higher rate. Um, but what you see is a huge increase in credit scores through time. And, um, you know, so you can see that the um, median credit score has gone from, you know, less than 700 in 2001 to around 743 at the present time. And the result, and that's ended up disproportionately on FHA's um, books. If you look at what's happened to Freddie full doc, uh, fixed rate full doc amortizing loans, um, just look at the first number on the far left-hand side of the page. You can see from 1999 to 2004, less than 700 FICO scores were about 35% of Freddie's book of business. In 2007, they were um, about 35% of Freddie's book of business. In 2011, 2012, they were about 7% of Freddie's book of business. So the GSEs have just um, totally withdrawn from, or largely withdrawn from the more risky part of the market. In fact, if you do, given current LLPAs, if you do a comparison between FHA versus GSE execution with PMI, what you find is that for FICO scores less than 680, FHA execution is almost always better than GSE execution. And this is just a 95 LTV loan, um, and I used um, sort of MI rates from Genworth. So the huge challenge is um, opening the credit box. How do you get lenders to lend to the full extent of the credit box? Do, um, to, um, to the extent you think that's important, and I do. Um, overlays are obviously a huge issue at the present time. So both FHA and FHFA are taking, are taking certain actions. First, um, FHA is trying to introduce um, credit counseling, where essentially, which is their Hawk program, homeowners armed with knowledge, where essentially you get a benefit if, you under, if um, a borrower undertakes counseling. They're also trying to give lenders um, some assurance by essentially putting together their 900 mortgagee letters in one place so that the lenders can find it. They're trying to um, do a new method for evaluating underwriting defects and severity so the lenders know exactly what the penalty is for violation. And they're trying to um, mitigate the negative impact of the compare ratios. FHFA has, has essentially relaxed pay rules for reps and warrant sunset. So it used to be three years completely clean pay history, and um, you have a safe harbor. Now you can have up to two 30-day delinquencies and still, ha and still uh, have a rep and warrant sunset. And that's been very important for lenders. And they're working on um, additional clarity on life of loan reps and warrants. And they're also working on um, providing additional clarity concerning servicing reps and warrants. So one of the big reasons you've had all these overlays is that lenders are unsure of exactly when they have responsibility to buy back the loans. And there are a lot of actions on both FHFA and FHA to clarify this. So um, I think, you know, sort of as we muddle along, what you can look forward to is, no, is uh, basically no increases in G fees, in my view and additional clarifications on rep and warrant issues that are designed to um, lend to the full extent of the existing FHA and FHFA credit box. Thank you.
So first of all, thank you for, for inviting me uh, to this wonderful and important panel um, at an important time <clears throat> as we're starting to finally rethink mortgage finance policy, though I'm afraid to say we still haven't really started the process of rethinking the ties between mortgage finance policy and housing policy. And I think it's important to really think about the distinctions of those, which we don't talk about often enough. A um, little bit of background, I was on the sell side of Wall Street uh, at a, one of the middle market firms that brought almost every one of the uh, subprime uh, lenders public in the mid-90s. People forget that there was subprime 1.0. Uh, I did probably uh, place 50% of those securities, um, watched the whole industry disappear in the late 90s, largely because of the Russian debt crisis and gain-on-sale accounting. But it was very clear that the seeds were being sown for it to become a market where subprime, which was originally defined by the borrower, would be transitioned to being defined by the product as a way of increasing the possibilities for the growth of that market um, and opportunities for investment banks and commercial banks to more fully exploit those markets. Fannie and Freddie really were uh, among the players who um, planted the seeds of the distortion of the market. Uh, I think anyone who knows my work uh, knows that I've been long critical of Fannie and Freddie's uh, uh, business models, but I think it's important to stop and, and remember that the business really changed in the, in the early 90s with Fannie and Freddie. Uh, once upon a time, they were really um, largely utilities, first government-owned, then, then uh, privatized. But they were intended to be um, uh, providers of liquidity to the primary market when liquidity disappeared. And instead, what we saw is that GSEs arbitraged the system so that they were a constant provider, not only of adequate but excess liquidity, so that they would go from really utility-like returns for their investors to um, you know, 20% ROE uh, with 50 basis points on assets. And so if you look at the leverage that was employed for the growth, it was highly problematic. Uh, 2001, in the wake of the dot-com crisis, uh, clients were coming and asking me, is housing, which typically lags the broader economy uh, by 12 to 18 months, is housing going to collapse? Um, and my answer was pretty clear. Uh, in a paper I wrote, which I think is still quite uh, appropriately titled, A Home Without Equity is Just a Rental with Debt. And in that, I pointed out that there were elements in place that would allow housing to outperform the broader economy by leaps and bounds, um, driven by reductions in down payment levels, focused effort to target low-income borrowers, reduction in private MI requirements on high LTV mortgages, Increased use of software to streamline origination. And remember, that was Fannie and Freddie, uh, their desktop underwriting systems, which, by the way, there were antitrust suits about at that point because they were crying out uh, the use of private desktop underwriting systems. Changes in the, uh, in the appraisal process driven by, um, uh, uh, by, by AVMs. And the conclusion was if these trends remain in place, housing will outperform the GDP until home price appreciation slows, wages fall, or unemployment rises. Um, as the Fed started increasing rates in 2004, it became very clear that the 12 to 18 month lag that we usually see between rate increases and the impact on the broader economy suggested we were going to have uh, a credit crisis. Um, 
And I would point out during that period in 2002, the banks, really the investment banks and the banks, um, lobbied the Fed and lobbied the Basel Committee to treat private label securities with the same capital risk weighting um, as agency mortgage-backed <laughs> securities, which was approved. And it, that was the point where it became off to the races on the private label side and a driver of competition between the agencies and the PLS market, which ultimately led to the agencies investing in the AAA tranches, the investment grade tranches of the PLS market, such that by the time of the crisis, they were funding 25% of the PLS market. Now, 2006, I began writing a paper that I uh, uh, presented uh, in February of 07, how resilient are mortgage-backed securities to CDO market disruptions? And at that point, we warned that the crisis was going to come, it was going to impact Main Street, and that, in fact, um, policymakers were going to be accused, especially legislators, of trapping their constituents in homes that they couldn't afford. And I had a conversation with Barney Frank, asked him if he was concerned about that uh, in, I guess it was 05, and his response was, we'll worry about it when it happens. <laughs> um, so here we are, years later, um, still not recognizing that uh, historically, home ownership was at about the time of family formation. You took out a mortgage, you made monthly payments of principal and interest, such that on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, at about the time of retirement, you could have a mortgage-burning party, and you had your largest retirement and intergenerational wealth transfer asset, which, by the way, reduced the burden on the social safety net functions of treasury programs. We distorted that. We, we redefined home ownership. So where you, you were once a journeyman or journeywoman on the road to home ownership until you paid off that mortgage, we started calling a person with no equity a homeowner. And we still haven't really internalized that difference in, in policy, and I think that's important to consider. Um, so where are we? At this point, um, we've, I think, increased complexity in the whole discussion about mortgage finance reform. I think meaningful reform, not total reform, not Final reform is somewhat possible and doesn't necessarily require congressional action. There are consequences for lack of reform. And at the end of the day, one way or another, we're going to have to address the GSEs. We're going to have to address the ownership structure of the GSEs. <clears throat> we're going to have to uh, address contractual rights of creditors, which frankly is something that's been lost through this whole crisis. Um, bank creditors. Um, agency creditors, we've really distorted creditor rights and done so without any real regard. And that's something that I think we're going to have to straighten out before we actually really have full confidence come back to the markets. So why did Fannie and Freddie fail? The first major reason is that improper use of their portfolios. Beginning in the 90s, they used their lower cost of funds, conferred by the implicit government guarantee to increase leverage, invest in each other's securities as well as the PLS. Prior to that period, their portfolios really only were liquidity portfolios. And using the portfolios in the way they did turned them into pro-cyclical hedge funds, as opposed to counter-cyclical utilities, which is what they were chartered for. Um, the GSE's capital requirements were also absurdly weak. And that was, by their goals, they created, they lobbied, they drove the process that, that led to the 92 Act, creating their new regulator. 
giving them very weak capital standards, <coughs> which were defined by a stress test that took over a decade to promulgate as a final rule, and really was a static snapshot of a moving market and wholly inadequate. Um, and then more than that, we allowed the GSE securities, which were backed by mortgages, to have lower risk weighting um, than the other financial firms, again, driving their growth. Moreover, they improperly priced their guarantee fees, giving large discounts to their largest volume lenders as opposed to pricing them as one should on risk. Um, and that supported the race to zero between the agencies and the, and the, and the private labeled primary market. And um, I think it's important to remember they were created as a utility to support the secondary market, but they were never regulated as such. So we've all gotten to a place where we talk about the GSEs. We consider GSEs a four-letter word. And I think it's important to really stop and question and ask, what is a GSE? GSEs merely affirm that the market believes to have an implied or explicit government guarantee as a result of size interconnectedness or charter. As a result of Dodd-Frank's different regime for the existence and resolution of our largest financial firms, they, like the GSEs before them, are now conferred with the lower cost of funds that result from an implied government guarantee. And so as a result, market discipline has disappeared for those firms who've been conferred advantage as systemically important financial institutions, and therefore aren't subject to market discipline and having to compete on pure economic basis. So banks and insurance companies are, are government-sponsored broadly by charter, but as long as they're disciplined by markets, able to be regulated and able to be resolved by failure, they really don't pose systemic risk. Other examples, less concerning, are, are water utilities, are electric utilities, um, are, are gas utilities, and they are, at the end of the day, chartered. They have an implied government guarantee behind them, but they're regulated as such. In return for their unique benefits, we subject them to stringent regulatory regimes, um, which considers market power, requires meaningful capital, um, and limits their growth by rate of return caps and the building of excess counter-cyclical buffers. So I think it's important really to stop and say, is GSE a four-letter word, or is a company or an industry that receives those benefits capable of being adequately regulated? So what can be accomplished without Congress? First of all, FHA has the authority to push forward with several meaningful changes. They have, under HERA, the ability to set capital. And um, you know they really have uh, no capital at this point, but that's largely uh, a decision of the, of the um, preferred stock purchase agreement that was struck by Treasury and, and, uh, and FHFA in 08. Um, and so the question is, where does that go from here? Um, there's been no defined method for the GSEs to ever repay. There's been no definition of what repayment is. Is it a return of or a return on capital? Um, as a result of the Third Amendment, there's no way for them to build capital. So they are riskier than they've ever been on a capital basis, and, and there's no immediate likelihood that that's going to change, though the regulator has the authority to move forward and start changing that. Second, that um, use of their portfolios. Um, they do have the authority to, and actually are, are mandated, to reduce the portfolios of the GSEs. And that's already in process and will continue to be in process. 
Um, there's nothing that will change that. Um, and, and so that's a second important area that we have seen already advances in. Credit underwriting standards have been improved, and I would argue, um, while I'm not a big fan of QM, relative to a complete lack of standards that we saw during the crisis, um, the GSEs are complying with, with QM, and that does, within limits, address some of the underwriting standard problems that we have. And they've raised their G fees, so their pricing com uh, risk commensurate, uh, their pricing credit commensurate with risk. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, um, there is a lot that Canon is being done. So why, what is Congress doing? And I think this is important because we've seen what I think is one of the more absurd um, examples of legislation where we're not starting with the question of what went wrong and how do we fix it. I was driving back from, uh, I live in New York, from Westchester a few, a couple of months ago, when I was, uh, I pulled up to a stoplight and my car was rear-ended. And I got out of the car, realized that the driver had been texting, and uh, looked at my car, it was a fender bender, it really wasn't a big deal, but it occurred to me that I had the perfect metaphor for, for Crapo Johnson. Uh, in the sense that uh, there's an economic choice to be made. The rational economic choice would be to bring my car to a body shop and have it fixed. Second possible choice, not an economically rational choice, would have been to junk the car and go buy a new car. Crapo Johnson is off was offering to build a new auto assembly plant to build us a new car. Okay. And I don't really understand how that could have been supported or how that serves either market need or economic rationality. Um, so if we were to, or when we do finally decide, and by the way, I agree with both Mark and Lori that this is a long way off legislatively, but I would hope that legislators would start with some basic questions. Does this protect the public? Does it improve market discipline? Does it reduce systemic risks posed by central players? Does it create a strong divide between the utility-like functions of the secondary market and private primary market mortgage origination? Does it increase mortgage lending on a sustainable base and at the least burden or cost to the taxpayer? And in the case of what we've seen so far, the answer is no. So right now we've seen uh, on the Senate side a bill that increases the power of our largest banks as both primary market players and with an increased ability to influence the secondary market. And it's important to remember, the combination of those two markets, or the giving of power of a secondary market player to drive the primary market, or the primary market player to drive the secondary market, is a big driver of what brought us to crisis in the first place. Second, the bill, as we saw it, reduced the ability of the smaller banks that don't compete, uh, don't benefit from that lower cost of funds to compete. And one has to ask what the impact of, on the TBA market would have been, and it would have been a disaster. So the GSEs are still central to mortgage funding, um, and right now the risk of replacing them with a Rube Goldberg mechanism that clearly wouldn't function and would disrupt the existing market is probably the wrong way of doing it, especially since Crapo Johnson didn't contemplate the ability to retain management during a five-year transition period, or any of the other transition risk issues. Uh, moreover, when you look at the first loss, and this again becomes an, a, a significant issue, the first loss under Crapa Johnson wasn't real. Um, there isn't possibly enough private capital under the structure. Uh, one area where I think 
uh, I, I may disagree with Lori, though we generally agree, is the MIs um, and the historic use of the MIs. Um, because even now, the MIs have about $8 billion of capital in total, which is hardly enough and suggests an inability to raise enough private capital in this market to really create a backstop in any meaningful size. Moreover, the MIs are state regulated. And so even before the crisis, Fannie and Freddie's regulator did promulgate rules, did have guidelines on how much capital the MIs had to have in order to do business with Fannie and Freddie. And when they blew through that, nothing was done because you needed to make sure that they continued to write new business to manage the costs of the losses on the old books. And the regulator, state regulators allowed these companies to operate in excess of 25 to 1 in breach um, and has demonstrated that they really won't force significant increases in capital. So as we move forward, we're going to watch the leverage, allowable leverage of the MIs come down dramatically. Um, and the question is, how much of the market can they support? Moreover, Crapo Johnson created incentives for market participants to withdraw liquidity at exactly the time um, that you'd need the liquidity there by allowing the suspension of that first loss uh, in a time of liquidity drain. Essentially, if you're an investor, you're going to recognize that at that moment where you can start seeing a weakening of the market, you are going to pull back so that the regulator exec um, uh, executes that waiver and so you can get away without any private first loss. Um, so all of this is uh, unworkable and meaningless standards in replacement of real capital. Moreover, the complexity that Crapo Johnson sought to create, and by the way, I'm harping on this because um, there are still folks on the Hill who are trying to keep this alive and make sure that it becomes the mark for the next um, Congress. Um, but rather than overseeing uh, Fannie, Freddie, the home loan banks, the new regulator that they offer would oversee aggregators, guarantors, a securitization platform, the first loss structures, mission, safety and soundness, and consumer protection. So you'd have unprecedented complexity in cross-regulatory coordination, um, which is kind of shocking to even be able to say, given the complexity that Dodd-Frank has created in regulation and cross-regulatory requirements. So in October, I will be putting out a full paper explaining how I would like to see the market go forward. Um, I'm not really laying out where I'm suggesting we go in this, but I think there are some things that can be done. Uh, we could suspend the Third Amendment, allow them to start building capital. We can define the repayment of the government's investment consistent with financial market legal standards and practices. We can implement strict capital standards. We can eliminate the portfolios for other than liquidity purposes. We can use stringent methods to price guarantees separate from the GSEs and political influence, which I cannot overstate the political influence as a driver of this crisis. Um, the wrapping oneself in the American flag of home ownership, the ability for not just the GSEs, but any private market player to call their um, favorite lobbied legislator and have the legislator lean on the regulator um, to go easy was a driver. The use of these uh, institutions by government officials to drive public subsidies through private markets really is the big problem here. 
Um, so we should think about, do we want to regulate the GSEs or whatever replaces them as, as utilities, where they really are building capital through the cycle and are a liquidity provider of last resort? Um, and you can achieve that even in the GSE structure, whether you decide that they should be nothing more than two fully private bond guarantors in a world where there are other private bond guarantors. Um, you can achieve that through the conservatorship route, with Fannie and Freddie coming out the other side as purely private and adequately capitalized. You could do a good bank, bad bank receivership with the new entities coming out with clean charter. But the bigger point is we really shouldn't reinvent the wheel that has driven secondary market um, liquidity successfully for generations. We should repair it well, just as we organized the need, recognize the need to do that after the SNL crisis. And we should start internalizing, A, housing policy is not mortgage policy. B, debt is not the same as ownership. And C, that liquidity is not in and of itself always a good thing. And I think that's another Absolutely. point that, that gets left too often. So if we are going to decide that there is a value to subsidizing home ownership, it should not be done through uh, private entities or private markets. It should be clear, transparent, and on, on balance sheet. Now, I would suggest that if the goal is to, especially with, uh, with a, 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 the difficulty we're having in seeing household formation at the lower age quintiles, where it's dropped, it just began to rise at the lowest age quintiles, um, but it's been dropping since really uh, the early 1990s because of wages. We should think about creating down payment savings plans on a tax-free or tax-advantaged basis so people could save for their increased down payments, reduce the credit risk, reduce the price of credit, increase their ownership, reduce the future burdens on Treasury's uh, um, safety nets, and allow people to actually have what housing was for the middle class was a discrete savings asset, really for families who didn't have excess income or excess wealth that they could put into markets. And so it was a way for the middle class to build wealth and move towards the, or I should say lower income, to move towards the middle class. Moreover, we should stop incentivizing leverage. And the mortgage interest deduction is a perfect example of that. It serves a very small piece of the market. Depending on the year, it's cost us between $60 billion and $200 billion. Um, it created incentives for people who did itemize their taxes because it didn't have any advantage to anyone else, which ironically means it wasn't really helping the lower or middle incomes. Um, but it created incentive for them to buy more home than they can necessarily afford, for them to continuously leverage that home. And we might want to think about ultimately replacing that with what I call a principal equity tax credit, so that you'd actually get the benefit from the pay down of principal rather than the payment of interest. And that would create incentives for people to become increasingly self-sufficient, for people to um, shorten the duration of their mortgages, so we'd have less demand for 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, we'd have reduced credit costs. Um, and so I hope that as we move forward, we'll see the movement of the discussion from mortgage finance reform to housing policy reform. We'll see the discussion move out from just Senate banking and house financial services to taxation, 
and we'll really start addressing the fundamental issues of what was good with the system, what was bad with the system, what failed, and try and fix it with simplicity rather than complexity, because simplicity is the only thing that helps markets function. And on the PLS side, I think it's important to, to point that out as well. Um, so the papers that I wrote in, in, uh, in 07, early 07, uh, one was called in February, How Resilient Are Mortgage-Backed Securities to CDO Market Disruptions? In May, I wrote, uh, Where Did the Risk Go? How Misapplied Bond Ratings Cause MBS and CDO Market Disruptions? And at the end of the day, the problem was that on the PLS side, unlike the agency side, there were no standards. Each issuer would have, you know, anywhere between one and ten different um, um, pooling agreements. And the PSAs were, as Laurie pointed out, typically three to 450 pages. And as we got to crisis, my clients were increasingly saying, you know what, I don't know what my contractual and legal rights are, so I'm gonna run for the doors and come pick through the rubble on the other side. And at the end of the day, because of a lack of enforceable standards, it wasn't even worth picking up the rubble for the most part on the other side. And here we are, years after the crisis, we still don't have a single standard definition of delinquency or default. We still have no standards of the rights of various parties to the investor. We've done, we've watched the sell side continue to avoid providing, to the best they can, levels of transparency of loan level data to investors so that they could properly price risk. And until we address those things, I think, again, it's going to be very hard to attract private capital. Unfortunately, we haven't had investors in the room asking them what it would take for them to come back to the markets in a meaningful way. And so until we do, I think private capital really can't be crowded in. So again, thank you for having me. And, uh, and I look forward to many years of us uh, muddling through with no, nothing meaningful <laughs> happening. So we had some great presentations, and as happens with people who know so much, we ran way over. But I think we have time for a couple questions. So if anyone has a question, stand up, and we'll get a microphone to you. Go ahead. For those of you too young to remember, the Soviet Union fell 25 years ago, and most credit uh, Chairman Gorbachev and his policies of glasnost, transparency, and restructuring for trying to bring that about. But it was exactly the opposite. Um, the restructuring of his system was a complete failure, and the Soviet Union uh, failed. And I was reminded of Perestroika with the presentation of this uh, panel. My question is essentially, and, I, and I'll explain why. My question is, why do you think your restructuring, your Perestroika, to save this system will end up any better than Gorbachev's? And to put that in context, um, you know, basically finances risk and return. That's, that's only two words. We heard here today that the evidence that 95% um, of the market is guaranteed is evidence that investors demand guarantees. But we know that's not true, right? We've got $17 trillion in government-guaranteed debt earning zero real interest rate. We've got investors in, in uh, public um, pensions that assume they're going to earn 8% real, so there's this huge gap between risk 
in return. They want yield. They don't want government guarantees. All right, what we're trying their, to restructure is the answers. setting of the capital re requirements. Let's get and their answers to that, just because we're short That's the end of the question. Okay. It's how is it you're going to restructure the system and not have them politically change it the week after you do it so that it doesn't fail anyway? Well, I mean, first of all, look, you know, and I don't think any of us really talked about it enough. Obviously, we're going to have to see mortgage rates rise significantly for private capital to come back. And so the question is, what's the willingness of policymakers to allow that to happen? And sadly, I think it's pretty limited. And so to some degree, I agree with you. Um, on the other side, there are things that need to and can be done by way of transparency, by making sure at the end of the day, buyers and sellers of security, since you talk about risk and reward, the capital markets are nothing more than the battle over price and value convergence. And what we've watched in the lead up to the cycle of this crisis is arbitrageurs in the middle, really the issuers and the information they've provided, being so opaque that it was very difficult for buyers and sellers of security to increase market efficiency to, in fact, price that risk appropriately. And that's really half the issue that I, that I think we're all saying needs to be addressed in the market side. Um. Kevin, first, let me say, I, I certainly agree. I, I I certainly don't think that the mortgage rate or the yield on mortgage-backed securities should be a target of policy. I think certainly the market should drive that. And while I have expressed um, an opinion that I do believe a deposit-based model can take up a lot of that gap, I don't believe in imposing that model. I believe in trying to pull out as many distortions we have today. Um, again, it's clear to me that so much securitization is just capital arbitrage. Uh, level the playing field and let uh, whoever can compete compete, and that's the way I take it. And I'm happy to live with it, whatever system comes out of that uh, as long as we can pull the guarantees out of it and bring some market discipline back into it. Um, in my view, we're not going to have a change for such a long period of time that it's almost not a relevant question. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, okay, let's take one more question and then maybe that'll be it. Um, I think this is uh, mostly for uh, Dr. Calabria. Um, you said that in 1960, uh, most houses were owned uh, free and clear. Uh, even when you adjust for inflation, how do home prices compare now to what they were back then? And in your opinion, do you think that homes are overpriced in terms of their value when people are taking out 90 to 97 percent debt to get them? So that's, that's a good question. So let me pull apart a couple of pieces. And, and as I mentioned, uh, I said 60% of homeowners own their homes, homes free and clear pre-1960. Even today, about a third uh, of homeowners own their homes free and clear. So it's certainly possible. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things, I mean, if you go back and look at Bob Schiller's 100-year price series of housing in real terms deflated, um, you know, we're basically back to kind of where we were post Great Depression. So my point B is over long periods of time in real terms, you haven't seen these massive returns to housing. Housing barely keeps up. If you um, if you subtract out the recent boom bust in the 2000s, you know, where we were in 1990 in real terms was kind of where we were in 1890. So again, the argument that it's a massively great investment to me is just not borne out by the data. I certainly will emphasize some houses in some air and sometimes are good investments, just as some and and sometimes are bad investments. You know, um, I live here in the District of Columbia. My house has done fairly well for me. If I lived in Buffalo, New York, it probably would have done pretty bad for but me. M Mark, so, the historic, I think, 
the historic difference. And so when you talk about um, investments, as a store of value, housing has actually been a pretty good inflation-adjusted and non-inflation-adjusted store of value. And so when you're talking about the lower classes and the middle class, home ownership has been a forced savings plan that tended to keep up with inflation so that people who didn't have any other option for returns were at least socking away so, money in a utility. So I guess I'll put it this way. On a national basis, on average, I think you're right that it has just kept up with inflation. Right. My point would be it's a pretty big variance to that, uh, both over time, as I showed the five-year change, and geographically. But I do think that Joss raises what a, a point that I think is incredibly important in this conversation that I hear a lot, which is the value of homeownership as a forced savings plan. Um, so I, to me, I think the conversation should be about, uh, you know, and, and Kevin touched upon this in his presentation earlier, just the abysmal savings rate we have in society. So the question should be, how do we try to encourage savings? Now, of course, I would say a Federal Reserve that engineers a situation where you essentially get zero on your savings is probably not a situation that's going to encourage savings. Um, but that said, I think it would be very helpful, just as Josh has touched upon, that we should have the conversation about mortgage finance within the context of a greater conversation about housing policy. We should have the conversation about it also in the greater context of let's find a better way to help people save that doesn't leave them so financially vulnerable, that doesn't leave our economy so financially vulnerable, you know, in the same way. And of course, it's to some extent the flip side of Kevin's comment. We live in this world where we think everybody should have really great returns on their savings, but we don't actually want to have the people who borrow pay a high rate, you know, either. So, uh, you know, we, we want our cake and eat it too, and it simply doesn't work that way. And let me just make one other comment, and that is um, we are going to end up with a home ownership rate much, much lower than the historical average. I think Mark pointed out that we're back to the historical average. Well, you know, we're going lower because you still have a, um, a fair number of people who are very deep in the um, delinquency foreclosure process who are who are um, ultimately not going to be homeowners. Um, you've got the student loan debt overhang. I think Josh mentioned that stu that real wages have been absolutely flat over the last um, almost 20 years and actually falling in the, that very important 25 to 34-year-old group. And then you've also got the fact that there's been this subtle change in home ownership. The millennials do not consider home ownership to be the store of value that my generation did. And the result of that is that we're going to end up with a home ownership rate probably down to the low 60s. And that's going to generate a whole lot of conversations about a more balanced um, home ownership versus rental policy. It's going to call into question the mortgage interest deduction, um, which is the single largest subsidy to housing anywhere in the budget. Let me click, let me click because I know that we're going a little time, but um, I just want to point out to me what I think one of the big conflicts I, I often hear in terms of housing policy, mortgage policy, is we want housing to both be you know, basic level of consumption. You know, we all need a place to live. We need shelter. And we want, so we want it to be affordable to people because obviously, you know, having people sleep on, on heating grates is not a great sign for society. But the other hand, we want it to be a great return too. And so you're not going to have something be a great investment unless it is limited in supply, which means we by definition decide that whole sectors of economy don't share in it. So my ultimate vision would be to create a Moore's law of something like that for housing where it becomes incredibly cheaper over time. And, you know, I would love to have a world in which I spend 5% of my income on a big house. 
instead of a world where people spend 40, 50% of their income. That world will not be a world, however, where housing is a great investment, but it will be a world where we're well housed and that should be our objective. Well, and I hope that um, we don't create another crisis in trying to subsidize our way into having everyone in a home. Um, (laughs) Because I think last time we did that and we, the results of that are long-term and they affect people's employment prospects and ultimately their ability to afford their own home. So these, these are big issues and I'm glad we're talking about them and I hope we do actually get some reform. So I, I think it's my responsibility to, to, well, first I want to thank anybody who made it through all two days. You're, you're a trooper uh, and uh, you're so much smarter now, so that's pat yourself on the back for that. Um, but I do want to thank everybody who came to any of the sessions and came to today. Uh, we're going to have a reception out in the Winter Garden. So uh, Josh will probably be just in front of the building smoking a couple cigarettes. So he's happy to continue the conversation there. Uh, but I welcome uh, you and thank you uh, for attending uh, and hope to continue the conversation.